Hello and a very warm welcome to Oxide Film with me, Tom. Once again, just me today on the hosting front. Matty is still battling through his finals, so all the very best to him for the last few and Colette's having a well-earned break after finishing herself. I am saved from my solitude this week once again by another fabulous guest. This time I am joined by one of LA's finest writers, Trisha Orand. Trisha is a screenwriter, a regular writer for YouTube channels Wisecrack and Lessons from the Screenplay, and co-host for the podcast Beyond the Screenplay. Earlier this year we had the great pleasure of speaking with Michael Tucker and Alex Calleros, so I'm continuing my crusade to have the whole Lessons from the Screenplay team on the show. I'm a long-time fan of the YouTube channel, and I've followed Beyond the Screenplay since it started. Both continue to be really entertaining and thought-provoking, so I really recommend everyone listening check them out. Trisha is also the author of Taking Flight, the Nadine Ramsey story, which will be published in September later this year. You can keep up with any updates Trisha might have on her Twitter, at Trisha Gine. She says at the end of the podcast she's a huge fan of just chatting to fans and chatting to fellow film lovers about various stuff, so do drop her DM as well. For this episode, Trisha and I will be discussing the 2014 film Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu, and starring Michael Keaton, Emma Stone, Edward Norton, and many more. Birdman won Best Film at the Oscars in 2015, and earned Iñárritu himself two Oscars for directing and screenwriting. I'm really glad to have had Trisha to talk to, to tease out some of the many, many strands of what this film is about. As expected, her thoughts on the film were really insightful. I have a very strange relationship with the film that I do explain in the body of the podcast, but suffice it to say that it's a very confusing watch and it's a film that's so much about criticism that to talk about it on a show like this is a challenge in itself, I suppose. I found out also recently that Iñárritu is looking to restore his first feature-length film from 2000, Amores Peros, for its 20th anniversary this year, and as such, I thought it was high time for me to blast through all of Vignaditu's movies before Birdman, none of which I'd actually seen before this past week. His filmography overall is pretty gruelling, it has to be said, so if you're not looking for tough watches during lockdown, I completely understand. It kind of wasn't a great idea for myself, but I got stuck in there anyway. Regardless, I do really recommend his films. He's got an excellent handle on telling stories full of connection and poignancy, stories which I think at a time as unstable as this are more important than ever. In mentioning this instability, it would be remiss of me not to mention briefly the situation in the United States at the time of recording. Uh, I'm speaking right now on Monday the 1st of June. Many thousands of protesters across the states and around the world are demanding reform to or defunding of the police system of the states, whose long history of harassment, violence and murder of people of colour, particularly black people, has been brought into the spotlight once again, unfortunately, because of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. This is not an overtly political podcast, of course it's a film review podcast, but I think it is very, very important at this time to declare our unconditional and unqualified support for the protesters who are fighting for true justice in the face of oppression. In the description, I attach various resources on George Floyd, on anti-racism, and where to donate if you can. 
My heart goes out to the family of George Floyd and to all those who have the bravery to stand up to the corrupt and murderous institutions of the world and to demand change. With that said, I hope that podcasts like this one provide a space for some much-needed relaxation and entertainment for film fans out there. Arguably, Birdman is one of the best films for an escape like this, since there's just so much for us to sink our teeth into as you'll hear. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Inyaritu's movies. I am really looking for some more insights on them and just more takes on what they're really about. So do be sure to find us on Facebook at Oxide Film and Twitter at Oxide Film. Please also feel free to DM us on both of those and let us know your thoughts. If you could drop a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, I would also hugely appreciate that as it really helps people find the show. But now, without further ado, I'll be joined in just a moment by Trisha, and I really, really hope you enjoy our conversation on Birdman. I'm going to destroy your play. But you didn't see it. Um, you know, did I do something to offend you? As I, a matter I'm of so fact, sorry. you did. You took up space in a theatre which otherwise might have been used on something worthwhile. Okay, well... I mean, you don't even know if it's any good or not. I didn't... That's true. I haven't read a word of it or even seen a preview. But after the opening tomorrow, I'm going to turn in the worst review anybody has ever read. And I'm going to close your play. Would you like to know why? Because I hate you and everyone you represent. Entitled, selfish, spoiled children blissfully untrained, unversed, and unprepared to even attempt real art. Handing each other awards for cartoons and pornography. Measuring your worth in weekends. Well, this is the theater. And you don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. So break a leg. We are joined now by Trisha Oran. Trisha, thank you so much for joining me today on Oxide Film. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to carry on the collection of Lessons from the Screenplay <laughs> co-writers. We've had Michael, we've had Alex, we've got Trisha. Brian, if you're listening to this, I'm coming for you. You're yes, going to be good. on the show someday. Collect them all. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought we would, before we'd head into the chat about Birdman today, uh, I just asked Trisha to... Give me some information about her rise into the film world. So oh how did you get into criticizing film? How did you get into watching film? Well, um, I'm much more actually of a screenwriter than I am a critic. I went to film school out here in Los Angeles, and that was many years ago. And then I, I basically started, you know, I, I pretty much studied screenwriting in school and started screenwriting right out of the gate as much as possible. It was for a long time, just a really hard road. Um, trying to actually make it as a screenwriter is insanely difficult. And there's no roadmap for how to do it exactly. Um, that's one of the most frustrating things about, you know, the quote unquote, trying to break into the film business, because there are actually 1 million ways or probably actually infinity ways to do it. And you only need to find one but you have no idea what that looks like or where it's going to arrive for you. Um, and as many people have said, you know, it ends up being about relationships uh, a lot, a large part of the time. But then, of course, where do those relationships come from? It, it's a whole thing. And, and I've also been in the film business 
during some pretty intense shifts in what the film business is and what it looks like. You know, I graduated from college in 2007. And so that was the year of the writer's strike. Um, and that was in the midst of like Netflix becoming what it is and, and um, both production and distribution, you know, shifting, technology shifting. And so it's been quite a ride so far. Uh, and I'm still in a place in my screenwriting career where I have to have a day job, a quote unquote day job. Although, of course, now my day job is pretty much the greatest one ever where I get to work on this YouTube channel, Lessons from the Screenplay, with my friend Michael. And I get to be a part of a film podcast. And so that is like a super condensed version of it, I guess. And in terms of film criticism, I'm grateful to Michael for essentially enticing me into that world. In 2018, I believe, uh, I went to a wedding of a mutual friend of mine and Michael's, and we reconnected at that wedding, and we were talking about movies a lot for hours and hours at that wedding reception. And uh, afterward, he asked if I would wanted to take a shot at writing a, a video for the channel. And I, at that point, like I watched his channel because, you know, he's a friend of mine, but I didn't really watch any video essays or even know really what they were, how to go about making them um, and had no you know real experience in, in any sort of like formal criticism or analysis. But I was really interested in getting into that. And so, you know, Michael invited me to pitch something to him and I pitched him a take on Jurassic Park. And uh, that was my first video for the channel. And it, it went really well. And it was, um, you know, at the time, Michael was bringing on um, the other members of the team. And so we kind of ended up stumbling in I ended up at least more so I think than the other guys I think I ended up stumbling in to film criticism yeah it's I mean the the rise of the video essay is something that we've seen as well in the same kind of period that you're talking about from I mean almost in the writer's strike like a tiny bit after that when YouTube started becoming a more kind of multifaceted platform so it's obviously lessons in the screenplay is one of the first to do that and one of the biggest channels on youtube as well i mean i've been following them for ages uh and since yeah since beyond the screen thank you. Started, you know yeah yeah <laughs> dedicated fan dude yeah i'm i'm very grateful i i work for i've done some writing for a few other channels as well and i'm obviously very biased towards ours but i'm i'm grateful that we we get to do the kind of criticism because Michael was lucky right out of the gate because he was early um on the video essay scene as you're talking about he has basically not had to to chase popular movies or or um, clickbaity kinds of uh, structure or approach to video essay creation, and so you know we have space to pitch, like Brian did recently, a Sunset Boulevard <laughs> video, which then became a Sunset Boulevard and Parasite video. Um, so very very thankful that Michael has dedicated the channel to being a space of of criticism that and analysis that we are genuinely interested in and not having to um, try to best the algorithm, the, the, the all-knowing, all-seeing algorithm that is that is unknowable to us, the God that is that. So for sure, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm excited for a future in the other two episode if it's ever gonna happen. I'd love it. Yeah, dude. I guess we could start going into uh, oh yeah, focus for this episode, which is going to be Birdman, as I said in the introduction. I thought before we got there, I would just give a brief overview of Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu's um, sort of career up to that point, uh, because he 
actually, if you look at the films he did in the past, going to Birdman as a black comedy is actually quite a big shift in terms of tone. So Alejandro Iñárritu uh, is a Mexican director. He, this is the quote from the Wikipedia page, so it must be right. Uh, <laughs> he's apparently known very well for telling international stories about the human condition. So <laughs> yes. his first, yeah. So his first four movies before Birdman were Amores Perros, which has its 20th anniversary this year. So mm-hmm. yet more reason to celebrate in the other two this year from 2000, which is a Spanish language film about various stories in Mexico City. And then 21 Grams, a 2003 English language film about various different stories in a city in America. And then Babel, which is another English language multi-story film. So those three films, 2003 and 06, formed the loosely called the Death Trilogy. Uh, <laughs> very light stuff. Yeah. Uh, because he, he co-wrote all of them with Guillermo Arriaga. And those films, as I said just now, all have this sort of uh, focus on one form- formative event for these different characters' stories and how different characters from different parts of a city or even the world, as we see in Babel, kind of come together around an event that is always a, a violent one, unfortunately. But it kind of, it, a lot of it is to do with language and these deeply human concerns about what people's priorities are, what people live for. So it, it's, it's extremely expansive stuff. And I watched all of them for the first time in the past <laughs> week. Um, and God bless so- you. <laughs> Yeah, so 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 just to say now like they're not exactly the best lockdown watch because they, no. like i said they are all very heavy they're beautiful but uh, i basically almost watched those uh and then his his fourth film before birdman was beautiful with javier Bardem from 2010 and wow and that movie is like probably the most depressing out it's of all of those unbelievably upsetting and long and just a tour of misery yeah it's two and a half hours of just nothing goes right or well and it, it's awful <laughs> exactly it, it's it, it is it is kind of pretty hard to get through i suppose i mean like i was looking at the reviews for it when it came out and there were some real savage ones not everyone liked it that's very true i mean i saw david fear just like hated it and basically saw this as the culmination of the narrative's obsession with tragedy and just sad things for the sake of sad things <laughs> Um, and I mean, the beautiful really is that apex, I guess. It is, yeah. With with that said, Inyaratu kind of carved this career as a filmmaker from Amores Paris, which has this comedy and, and this great sadness as well about, you know, the human condition, whatever mm-hmm. that phrase is supposed to mean, it's quite broad. And then goes to Birdman. So there's a huge move from this weighty drama um, that ends up being fairly monotonous in the best possible rendering of that word, in beautiful, to to black comedy in Birdman, and I mean, I think it's it's there's a danger of kind of overanalyzing that sort of journey as a director because it's kind of it it's too easy to get into kind of alter territory and just be like, sure. oh yes, he had this kind of vision of what he was doing, and I think with Ariaga, like you know, they would have had so much influence together in making those first three films, and there's a bit there's a bit of controversy about about the balance of the relationship between how much um, Eriaga contributed to those ideas. But in any case, I think it's worth now just getting into Birdman because there is so much to cover. And it's a film that I will kind of get into, but it's a film that uniquely intimidates me. Interesting. Which which that which sounds weird. So on that on that absolute cliffhanger, yeah, ooh. I'll just give a quick plot recap. 
we are doing spoilers, of course, because it's Birdman. You can't really cover the whole film, as you said before, without exactly. doing Exactly. So, Birdman is a 2014 American black comedy drama film directed by your boy Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. Uh, it stars Michael Keaton as Rigan Thompson, who's a faded superhero star who is famous for playing the titular Birdman superhero in some like trashy blockbuster 90s movies that formed the trilogy. So this character, Rigan, has this internal ego voice of Birdman commenting on, judging, and basically giving this internal monologue through the entire movie about what he sees around him. So Rigan is trying to put on a Broadway production of Raymond Carver's What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, this sort of short story to kind of prove himself artistically and give himself a new lease of life in terms of being a creative output and not being overshadowed by this Birdman influence. And it's the night before the previews. It, his One of his co-actors is terrible. And lo and behold, a light falls mm-hmm. on this guy's head. Um, <laughs> and which which I forgot. I forgot oh my happened um, from the first time that I saw it. So I was like, it's one of those moments where I just jaw drop very early in the film. And they have to replace him with this uh, very brilliant but temperamental method actor played by Edward Norton. And so it basically follows the first couple nights of the previews and, the, and then the final night of the show with all this backstage drama between Riggan and his daughter, Riggan and his ex-wife, Riggan and his girlfriend, Edward Norton's character, the, the uh, fellow actor's very weird mm-hmm. nature and his girlfriend and a New York critic comes in there as well. And it basically builds up to Riggan's semi-breakdown and then the first night of the performance where at the end of the day, Riggan attempts suicide on stage uh, at the end of doing this play where his character is supposed to shoot himself and survives the botched attempt. And at the end of the film, he's in his hospital ward. Uh, His daughter, Emma Stone, goes out to get some water and he looks up at the birds in the sky steps out of his window ledge his daughter comes back in doesn't see him obviously hurries and looks down to the pavement and looks up and smiles in delight and the film ends there so it's a bit of a roller coaster <laughs> ride um as all as all in the other two films should be and it, it, it's worth saying now that the film almost entirely is shot as if in one sequence yeah uh, like a single shot a bit like our recent 1917 or way back with Hitchcock's rope uh, which I think is a better parallel maybe because it's yeah. supposed to be a kind of real sequence and also very much indoors as well there's a huge amount to say about this film I'm really excited to talk about it but Trisha do you have any first impressions about your experience with the film and when you first watched it and what you thought Yeah, I mean, I saw this when it came out in 2014 because it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and, of course, then went on to win Best Picture and Best Director for Inyaritu at the Oscars that year. Um, And so I remember being just really impressed and surprised by it. Um, Part of the reason, of course, being that that's it's not the kind of movie we expect from this filmmaker. Um, being very familiar with Inyaritu at that point, I was like, well, what is this gonna be? This I don't know. And it watching it again, like this week, um, I'm just even more impressed by it and also just even more interested in um the way that the movie meditates on 
fame and celebrity culture and art, of course, like all of these themes are in there. And I mean, it's just, it's just masterful. It's interesting. I, I remember at the time and, and I've heard since then criticisms of the one shot conceit um, where the question becomes, you know, d- did it need to be one shot? Right. And that anytime you do something that's a little bit gimmicky or potentially a little bit gimmicky, everybody wants to pick it apart and say, you know, maybe it didn't need to be this way. Would it be a better movie if it wasn't this way? You know, 1917 was fielding that angle of criticism as well last year, but I watching it again, I'm, I think it's really effective and not just because it, not just because it's technically so impressive to look at, although of course it is, but I really do think it's doing something thematic and helping us you know, follow the journey, like Riggins' descent here into, you know, madness, self-loathing, depression, um, all of these places that Riggins arrives at. So, I mean, it, I don't know if it's like a favorite movie of mine, but I just really, really, I just think it's excellent. Like it's excellently made. It's a very good place to start, I suppose. I think the, you, I think you're right about the single shot comments. As far as I can tell, it was basically they wanted to do it because it was a huge challenge and they had to build. It's this crazy stories about having to build of course, stairs yeah. wide enough for one of the camera men who had these like massive feet and all these, <laughs> and these kind of really funny anecdotes about the film. Like the film, I mean, you know, this is testament to people being obsessed with it, but the film's Wikipedia page is enormous. Like there is so much information on there, which I have not really seen before. And it's so technical as well, like you say. Yeah, it's unbelievably detailed. I read through it as well. And I was like, well, this is all very helpful. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who, how many fans put this together. But thank you so much. It's, it's so informative. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, um, the single shot thing feeds so well into the idea of the film being a disorientating experience. Um, of so I, I said earlier that it's a film that uniquely intimidates me. Mm-hmm. And what I meant by that is that I feel so stupid watching it. Like I, I feel like when I finish the film, I'll be utterly inept and unable to comment on what it really means. And I think like, you know, we'll mm. get into this later, but it's a film about art at the kind of most foundational level. It's a film about critique of art and how that critique doesn't even make sense. And there's a really interesting point about the end of the film that we'll get to that as well. So there's like, you know, there's a lot of thoughts to organize through, but I think like, because it is so complicated and it's a film that is trying to make you uncomfortable about how you see fame, art, performance, truth, truth especially. Mm -hmm. That's why the film makes me think like, what if I'm just missing completely the kind of the point or, or the many points that are going on? I think because it's just, it is a very artfully made film and it's got so many working parts that Mm -hmm. are, unusual and and really interesting so the single shot thing is one good example of that but the drum score is also fantastic of um, course interspersed with some like mala here and there but that's also a really really cool choice and the moment you start the film yeah. you know you're in for a, a bit of an unhinged ride because it, you know all the letters come on the screen at different times based off of the kind of drum pattern yep so with that said i'm really looking forward to just disseminating these ideas a bit because it's good to kind of get it out of your head and hopefully be reassured that like i'm able in some way to contribute to talking about this film because it is it it makes me 
melt into this pit of anxiety be like i don't understand the film i don't understand what's going on when i watch a film um, <laughs> and it's, 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 it's one movie as well because it happened to me the first time i watched it but in any case um i guess we could start going through some <laughs> themes which is a great place to kind of start us off i suppose um i wanted to talk about truth first truth with a capital t capital t yes dude let's mm-hmm. capitalize it mm-hmm. on this podcast um so obviously we've got these different angles of edward norton's character the method actor shiner mm-hmm. he's sort of he comes across as like insanely pretentious but apparently a good actor but then you know later in the film where he has a physical fight with riggan mm-hmm. who kind of berates him for various reasons and then he goes and talks to riggan's daughter played by emma stone and shiner displays honesty and says like yeah i probably deserved getting beaten up for that so after that point you kind of see him in a very different light after he's this person obsessed with truth obsessed with like performing truth and being true to himself only on stage and all that kind of artifice goes away when you realize that he seems all right so i guess what what do you think about that kind of transformation for shiner specifically i mean shiner is a really interesting character because he is I mean, he's designed, of course, to be a foil to Riggin, to push Riggin beyond the bounds of like what he thinks of himself as an actor. Uh, and, you know, he's he's designed to be um, set up as like this this classical, serious, you know, he's critically acclaimed and all of this stuff. And of course, he has that relationship with the critic we see later where they're like friendly with each other. And, you know, he has this sort of uh, gravitas to his career or he's taken great care to, to take only only roles that are like for real actors, right? You know, obviously supposed to be the polar opposite of the way that um, Riggins' career has gone. It is interesting though, of course, because for me when I'm watching it and, and Inyaritu is doing this on purpose, all I can see are actors that I know and I'm familiar with from other films and that I, of course, have some relationship with in in pop culture and in film history and so there's no doubt that michael keaton is cast very deliberately (laughs) in this part um it's an obvious reference to all of the batman you know to the batman series and in fact like even the the poster that he has of the birdman character is like designed to look like a 90s the 90s batman poster and there's no mistaking the casting of edward norton here (laughs) as this sort of like self-absorbed um pretentious difficult quote-unquote serious actor like that's it being channeled very deliberately um on Inyaritu's part and so for me when I see that I'm just like it is purposefully blurring the lines on a meta level about what we are watching and it invites us to consider the truth the capital T of who these men really are, who these actors really are, even as they are playing characters who are actors who are similar to, you know, it, it's it's doing all of this on purpose. It's messing with you as an audience member. And so I don't have a lot of sympathy for Mike as a character because he's a jerk. He's supposed to be, right? And Riggin is our protagonist and we're supposed to be rooting for Riggin. And if you can think of... Shiner as like sort of the antagonist in a traditional sense, then you're not supposed to like him. 
But at the same time, he's also doing that, you know, as as great antagonists do, he's doing that dark mirror thing where he's a reflection of who Michael Keaton, you know, potentially is or wishes he could be or, or wishes he could see himself as. And he even, the movie channels that even further when when Shiner steals the story of like why he became an actor. He like steals it and it ends up in the newspaper. Um, he steals that from Riggin at the bar. So the movie is very purposefully inviting you to consider the similarities between these men and the similarities between them and their real life people who are playing them. I guess that's a perfect way of linking it to the play that they're actually putting on. Uh, yeah, so so Riggin's character has written this adaptation of the of the short stories and then is directing it and is starring in it. So there's that kind of angle of whether the fact that he's decided to do this is just another expression of his ego is, is he's battling with that over the entire movie. But then, yeah, so, so, you know, you see only a couple of the scenes and it's like really melodramatic. The staging is kind of, uh, it's a bit boxed in when they're talk when they're like in this sort of like almost kitchen sink drama in the one scene. And another scene you see is, um, is the character Ed's wife, like talking about some past relationship with these like reindeer people walking around her. So when you're kind of when you're backstage in the film, in the backstage of the theater, watching these different scenes, you kind of think because you're not an audience member watching the the theater play, you're so removed and detached from the artifice of the play's text, as in the the Raymond Carver, that at least I think like whenever I watch those scenes, I think like this is terrible. Yeah. It's a yes. It seems like a bad play. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, and and even at near the end of the play, where Shine's uh, acted character in the Raymond Carver, you know, is in this motel, and Riggins' character bursts in, and you know, Shine is supposed to be this renowned actor, but I remember watching it for the first time and thinking, like, well, he's not acting very well here either. Yeah. Um, so 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 that what you're saying about making us question who these actors are, what is going on when we're watching them act different people is definitely right, I think. Um, and then just to kind of move from there a tiny bit to the fact that back to the single shot thing, okay, maybe it's supposed to be real time. There are a couple of scenes that deliberately and explicitly show you we're not dealing with a linear progression of time. And one of the, I think the clearest one for me is when Shiner and Riggins' daughter end up like fooling around on like the kind of wings of the theater and then the camera kind of goes over them and goes to the the last preview of the play and so you're like mm -hmm. okay well i've just been shown that the artifice of the film that's supposed to be presenting itself as real time isn't real time right so we've got this i mean forgetting we can get into the flying sequence where <laughs> literally flies around new york later but like aside from that even there's still magical realism in the text of, of of where the movie is going of course and it's interesting because again the the like one shot construction of this we, we we often see this in rope or something like 1917 where the use of the device is very consciously chosen to keep the audience in the action which is unfolding in real time right what film does that theater cannot do is manipulate time but often when we see this construction, 
they're using the one shot of the camera or whatever to not manipulate time, to not edit, right? That's the idea is like, we're not messing with your sense of time. We're trying to put you in a scene that's unfolding as it happened. I don't know if I can think of another example of a film that does this but purposefully then manipulates time. Like, and so it's really, really interesting. And, and I think to me, what it more signals, it, it gives you that like claustrophobia and the disorientation as you were talking about. But again, to me, it more signals the, the Riggins journey. Like then again, we don't always stay with Riggin. Like, so if, if every single scene of it, we were just with Riggin, it's like, oh, of course, this is the descent into madness that Riggin is dealing with. But then we don't even stay with Riggin. Like, then we go over to, you know, what's happening between Sam and Mike and and um, sometimes that scene also with the actresses. And like, we're, we're just moving around the theater independently, looking at whatever it is that Inyaritu wants us to look at. Um, that is sort of all thematically kind of informing what's going on. So it's a fascinating choice. And, and I get why people kind of questioned what is that device doing in this particular movie if it's not doing the thing that it's actually designed to do? <laughs> yes. And I, I'm really, really glad that you mentioned that comment about what film can do that theater can't. So this reminded me of a very specific uh, and slightly angering thing I encountered. So, um, you know, Tom Stoppard the playwright oh yeah um yeah he's a british playwright so his i think arguably his most famous play is arcadia which is this sort of sprawling play about a genius young girl who wants to be a mathematician and it kind of has these two timelines of this present day house and also the events that occurred in this house a while ago as well and in the, the kind of the anymore of the play has this has this like double time sequence happening at the same time on stage mm-hmm. and what tom stoppard said was that there's no magic in cinema. He said, he tried to explain himself and said something like, film cannot display time in the way theatre can. So it's precisely the opposite of what you're saying in the way, in the sense that it can't, um, film can't do uh, this sort of displaying of time that at the end of Arcadia does. But I'm, but you know, watching something like Birdman and kind of being reminded that like, well, I mean, I'm watching something that is obviously beautifully crafted. There, there is some magic in this sense. I think obviously Stoppard meant it in a certain limited way, but I was really interested by that comparison um, just because people watch films way more than theatre. Yes, and they do. There's, there's, one, there's one point in the film, you know, where like Sam, Rickon's daughter, shouts at him for trying to imbue this play with meaning that's only really going to get received by stuffy old white people, as she says, whose only question they're thinking about during the play is what what thing they're, what thing they're going to have for supper afterwards or something. But yeah, no, no, I, I think your, the, your comments about time are definitely right. Well, it's so interesting because I remember thinking about this uh, the year it came out because this was the same year that Boyhood was out and like everyone was lauding Boyhood for the way that it, you know, uses time or like the real passage of time um, in the same way that this feels like sort of experimental or messing with the form. So also boyhood was messing with the form of how we like watch and experience film by, you know, the experimental nature of, of the filmmaking. And you can do almost anything with film. The nature of film is so expansive and inclusive and you can you can do 
anything, right? You can you can do these magical realism sequences that we have in this drama, but you can also like, you know, thinking about like some of the different experimental films that we've had over the years, like filming on in different formats and like different kinds of editing technique and different, da, 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 you know, the list goes on forever. You can do anything with film, but there has to be a reason at the end of the day. Like you have to be saying something or have something unique that you are trying to explore, which I think for a lot of people, like boyhood explores time, which is is good and, and it's interesting to watch. I'm not trying to knock boyhood, but it doesn't feel as thematically complex to me as this movie does because this movie is doing a number of things um, that are kind of experimental and messing with the formal at the same time. So we also talked about the score, the percussive score, um, and then talk about the different choices of like, what are we being shown, right? Which is something sometimes in question about how real it is or how real it's not. It's doing all of these things simultaneously as it's doing this like conceit with the, the camera work. And so that creates the complexity and that sense of, I think, intimidation that you were describing earlier. It's like, how can anyone make sense of all of this stuff together? It's so jam packed and it's doing this meta thing as we, as we said, so God bless Linklater. And I, I love, I love boyhood a lot. Um, I just think that this, I just think that Birdman for me is dizzying in a way that I, I keep coming back to. I think that is, that is definitely the, the symptom of, of, watching the film is uh, the intimidation thing is really about that and also that in in contrast to something like 1917 this film is obviously constantly moving forward in terms of you know the previews are coming you know the first night is coming how are they going to pull the play together but the camera's obviously moving around the whole time and it's following you know if it's following Regan down the street if he's you know in his tighty whities <laughs> which feature in in Yadatu's Oscar acceptance speech that I watched earlier today <laughs> I'll link it in the description. It's pretty iconic. Or if it's him walking past, you know, a physical manifestation of, of the drummer doing the score. I remember I gasped because you can feel as the, the movie is building and building. And you and we know, we know that Riggin has picked up a real gun and loaded it. And we know that he's going to walk out on stage and, and try to kill himself. And we've been hearing that that percussive score just on and on and on. And then he walks past the drummer backstage actually doing it it's one of the yeah, it's one of the most brilliant moments in it and, and it just flies by we just go by it and it, it just like packs that punch right at the end speaking of flying oh yeah let's get into the bird man dude <laughs> let's let's talk let's talk about the let's talk about the besuited gravelly voiced Birdman. i want to watch Birdman, dude i i can't lie I do too. It sounds awesome. And there's three of them. I want to watch the Birdman yeah. trilogy. It's sweet. Is that dude when the when the dude's backstage and he's like Birdman four? I want Birdman four. I do too. <laughs> Why would somebody go from playing the lead in a comic book franchise to adapting Raymond Carver for the stage? And, and you know, as you're probably aware, uh, Barth said the cultural work done in the past by gods and epic sagas is now being done by laundry detergent commercials and comic strip characters. And this is a big leap you've taken. Yeah, it is, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, like you said, that uh, Barth said, 
Uh, see, Birdman, like Icarus. Okay, wait, 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 hang on. Who is this Bards guy? Which Birdman was he in? Uh, Roland Barthes was a French philosopher, and if you knew anything about the history sure. of twenty. Now, is it true you've been injecting yourself with semen from baby pigs? I'm sorry. As what? a method of facial rejuvenation. Where did you read that? It was tweeted by at Prostate Whispers. No, that's not true. But I know, but did you do it? No, I didn't do it. I just, okay, I just said it's not true. You're denying it. No, don't write anything. Why would you write anything? I didn't. I didn't do. Don't write what she said. I didn't do it. I didn't put any baby pigs. If you will, uh, are you at all afraid that uh, people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up super? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman Four. Pull the mask off. You do pull the mask. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're expecting some great pieces. Guys, in publicity. Now on a Times feature, which is the worst idea right now. Obviously, like fame and yeah. the status of superheroes is a gigantic part of this film because yeah. Riggins' entire internal monologue is this uh, again, like I say, amazingly gravelly voice of the of the inner Birdman inside him that is yeah constantly judgmental. It's all about saying this is your your real nature is me, Riggin. I, you know, you have become Birdman. That's what you're famous for. You you can't escape that part of yourself. We're getting to the kind of Buddhism meditation thing where he tries to suppress his anger. He sees this inner voice as just a kind of manifestation of his rage. But yeah, I mean, you know, we have not left a world of superheroes dominating culture. Nope. Uh, it, since, I mean, when Birdman came out in 2014, Inyaratu back then was making the comments that Scorsese was was going to get like annihilated for it in in certain ways. Like commenting on Marvel in a certain negative way is going to like get you like murdered. Apparently. <laughs> but anyway, for for Inyaratu, he said something like um, that the the kind of a blind veneration of superhero culture or, or, or superheroes as characters. Uh, was, what kind of moral idols was cultural genocide so he took it pretty far um and you know that's a it's a pretty damning claim um uh, especially quite. you know c- considering that that yeah like i said we, we after birdman we've still been watching and enjoying these movies you guys had your episode on captain america civil war mm-hmm. uh, that came out well as of recording came out today so i was listening to that this morning but yeah i mean what, what were your kind of first thoughts about what the film is trying to say about what superheroes do to people's consideration of themselves and the public because even though we've got Riggan in the center the public have a voice in this film which I think isn't isn't talked about as much but yeah I mean so many thoughts here uh I think one of the interesting things that I was reading is that you know in Yaritu is obviously there's a scathing critique in here of superhero movies um you'll I mean you'll never get more disdainful than the scene where Birdman is walking behind him on the street and then there it like goes into like a scene from a Birdman movie or like a superhero movie where there's like helicopters flying over and there's a I think it's like a robot or an alien creature that's like attacking the city and and all of this stuff I mean that's just it's it's just so um looking all the way down its nose (laughs) all the way down its beak perhaps I was about to make that comment Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, at, at that genre. And yet it's interesting because I really think it's more pointed at 
popcorn movies in general and then superhero films as being a particularly salient modern manifestation of that like you know feeding to the public these like light popcorn movies because i was reading that the end his original ending of this had to do with johnny depp and the character of captain jack sparrow so like he was gonna have johnny depp the real johnny depp in like full-on his pirates of the caribbean makeup jack sparrow look like show up at the very end and like that was kind of gonna blur those lines there so i mean that's obviously the same like franchise malaise that in in Yaritu is is kind of um yeah trying to poke holes in here but at the same time the character of the critic her big issue with Riggin is that he was a superhero actor and so she says she's gonna you know trash the play and he's like you haven't even seen it and she's like I'm gonna ruin it anyway because you don't get to come in here this is the theater your flashy you know shallow superhero whatever doesn't doesn't get to infiltrate our sacred space in here and I don't think she's any more sympathetic than somebody like Mike or somebody like Riggin so I I think that there's nuance right there's absolutely a thoughtfulness to the way that Inyaritu is treating superhero movies maybe not in and of themselves but certainly in terms of the creators and and people who make them right are, are they are they less artists like are they lesser than as actors are they lesser than as directors or you know filmmakers because they're making superhero movies does that absolutely preclude real art taking place on screen i don't know i don't i don't think this movie offers a definitive comment on that thankfully well, I, I, yeah, lacking a definitive thing is definitely like what the movie is kind of famous for in like so many different ways, as we've already kind of touched on. Yeah, yeah. I think I was thinking about this this afternoon that you know we have we we've moved even further f- than we were in 2014 mm-hmm. in into this territory of like, well, now that the world has <laughs> sounds so like uh, melodramatic, now the world has seen Endgame, right? We've we've moved beyond that and become this like you know, yeah, post-apocalyptic, like, phase four world, where, like, Marvel's not going to stop anytime soon. Absolutely not. keep carrying on making movies, and we're going to see if people really get tired of that, or whether it's just going to keep selling and be entertaining, as it probably will. But at the moment, it's so interesting that for us right now, we're not being constantly inundated with news about films and like um film production is obviously kind of grinding to a halt across the entire oh, world yeah. but also you know we, we haven't got a consistent releasing of films and of superhero films yeah so we we're actually at a time where we can kind of reflect quite well about this and like and, and take a step back and look at how many movies from marvel are, are starting to come out each year because you know after you know since sort of endgame it's like been three a year and yeah. you know Way back back in my day, when I was thirteen years old, we, we only had we only had one, we only had one a year. That was our special treat. Um, but but you know what was I, I'm twenty one and I grew up with Marvel movies. And uh, I mean, you guys talked about it on on your podcast about Civil War recently. I think it might have been Brian who said it's interesting for him to look at or hear the thoughts of people who have grown up with these movies and for whom Endgame is actually a a climax of something that has been developing and growing as 
that as as a person my age has been maturing Mm -hmm. what's interesting to me personally is that phase one was like amazing i loved all of those movies including thor the dark world i know i know it really is impressive yeah my 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 14 year old brain uh was a, a a different place but but you know like age of ultron was maybe the kind of apex of my interest and my excitement about where all these stories were gonna go and where the Infinity Stones and all that stuff is going to go. And it's interesting to me that, like, after that point, I was still watching pretty much all the movies. I haven't seen a couple of them. But it got to Endgame, and I was like, okay, well, these are still fun to watch. They're still do- They're still accomplishing loads. But I don't I don't feel for these arcs anymore. It, 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 it's only a kind of, shi- um, what's the word? Like a shivery, uh, you know, goosebumps moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not a seriously satisfying thing. And that's, um, you know, that's not the same for everyone my age bracket, right. but it's, I, I've, I've been interested to see my own franchise uh, fatigue with Marvel as that has grown up. But, you know, Birdman was, I think, you know, a time where the future was sort of, it still wasn't actually that set, I don't think, because we, we now have, yeah, like I said, we have this world where, you know, Infinity War worked mm-hmm. and that was incredible looking back at it. And I'm wondering now whether we really have a significantly different view of all this stuff now in 2020, as opposed to back then when Berman actually came out and whether the comments are different. Yeah. I mean, I have a few thoughts here. The first one being that I have been predicting now for a number of years that the franchise um, sequel remake reboot bubble is going to burst. I did not predict it would be a global pandemic that might cause that, but it, it it may, you know, we'll see if the film industry picks up right where it left off. I think you're right about Marvel. I think that at least about Marvel in particular, the approach to filmmaking um, or the approach to like the tentpole films and, and theaters, what's going to end up happening with theaters um, and whether they, you know, remain financially, um, viable as distribution, which they they may not. Who knows? One thing that's really interesting um, about this this current culture is we as film goers are wiser than we've ever been about why and how films get made. And we are becoming more and more resistant as consumers to being treated like giddy or easy to dazzle we are much more demanding even of our like big franchise films than we've ever been and and so when you have these enormous properties with cultural value attached to them we want them to be treated by the studios as pieces of culture and art and not transparently pieces of commerce I, I've been seeing a lot lately, and Alex was doing it on our Civil War podcast, but I've been seeing the word product lobbed around a lot at at, at recent big blockbuster films. Studio movies have always been products. The thing is, we want that better disguised from us. We don't want to know that it's a product. We don't want it to see it as the money grab that it is. And so where Marvel is successful at disguising this in a way that, you know, the recent Star Wars movies were not, um, or the DECU is not, or the Transformers films are not, 
or the more recent i love know, those by the way that's god bless you <laughs> i did a, i did a podcast on beyond the screenplay for those five me all five by the way all wow five, I'm waiting. okay i mean don't hold your breath on that uh tough sell i think for michael but um or you know the pirates of the caribbean franchise for example which quite obvious like so quickly descended into into the money grab place we get angry when our studios are are trading on these cultural you know these pieces of culture like they're nothing more weighty than the popcorn that we buy to eat while we watch them and so that is kind of like i think that's the frustration piece and this movie particularly is it's kind of swimming in that water or swimming in that conversation. You know, the, the reporters show up to talk to him about his play and they just want to ask him about Birdman. And like, you, sh- you know, like you were saying, they should, should have done Birdman four. And, and then um, the audience is there to see him because he's Birdman. And when he's, you know, on his March through Times Square, the crowds are mobbing him because he's Birdman. And so this movie definitely is like, wondering about the public and and the way that we see superhero movies and and movies of their ilk what makes what makes a piece of art valuable is it does it have to be serious does it have to be theater and i think that this movie probably veers in that direction a little bit of like maybe it should be theater but also the other side of that coin is Self-indulgence, self-destruction, pretension, abuse of the people in your life, broken relationships. So that's a conversation that's as old as art itself. You know, all of our, for some reason, we we are fine with all of our artists being among the worst people in the world, you know, and yet we love them. Hopefully that last point is changing for the future a little bit. I was reading an article about Woody Allen this morning, yeah. about his new film with like Timothy Chalamet. Um, and, and that like that there's that entire politics of yep. saying the right thing at the right time if you're an actor if you're you know part of Hollywood and whether that is that whether that also is completely false if you're if you're retracting your support for someone so the product thing completely agree I think you know Alex's kind of cons- oh, what's it? Um, complaint about that is like it's sort of it's justified but as you say it hasn't it's not new and Scorsese is you know recently made that comment about Marvel films that got a lot of traction but I saw him at Oxford when he came to speak at the union and he made a you know he he was obviously very clearly concerned about films becoming content uh in in that in kind of new way and that's the sort of response to the fact that that is what YouTube is and it's this um you know big, big creators on YouTube are pushed to make content so that's kind of one huge concern about the content thing and that kind of bleeds into is that a capitalism thing I think so, because it's about not, as you, as you said quite rightly, not wanting to th- see things in a certain way, wanting to things to be masked from us. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can go into explode into territory of like, I don't want to think about the Amazon worker delivering my package. I don't want to think about the Californian workers getting my avocados. So, so you know, it's, it goes in lots of different territories, but they're kind of like the, the masking and not wanting to think is so powerful and so sort of uh, ingrained in people's psyches because you know the world's not an easy place to live in no nope. le- le- least of all now um and <laughs> yeah you know, lots you know lots of reasons for that and so you know we want these distractions we want these movies like this and what's so interesting then about going back to birdman with this is that the critic writes this like rubbish review of and I, I, I what i mean is you know she writes this review of the play that's positive and she loves it 
And she says that it's given birth inadvertently to a new genre of plays, super realism. Mm -hmm. What I find so interesting about this scene is that when you see the end of the first performance of the play, when Riggins just literally shot himself on stage and everyone kind of gets up in a round of applause, she leaves as the applause is happening. There is no way she could have known that he was going to shoot himself. Right. So, but, but then she writes this review about how, you know, about how like the, the intent is all there. So behind the scenes, you see, you know, maybe she has this like massive crisis of conscience where she finds out minutes afterwards that he's might die. Right. And, and, then, and then she suddenly realizes after watching the play, oh, what I just saw was something else and not what I thought it was. Yeah. So it goes back to her determined, you know, determined nature to kill his play and make it not run up all way because her review matters. But it's kind of, you know, it, it's the most sort of trite version of writing theatre criticism and kind of headline thing of like, as it's a new genre. The unexpected virtue of ignorance. Yeah. We forgot to mention that. That is the, that is the, the title of the film. Mm-hmm. And what's funny for me right now is that I'm doing some Aristotle um, philosophy for my course. And uh, the Nicomachean ethics is all about virtues of character, how we acquire virtues, what knowledge is, and when we can be excused of our ignorance. Um, so the, the the virtue and ignorance thing is like really prevalent for me right now. Um, but I just wanted to raise that thing, yeah, that fact the critic, you know, her contribution is kind of meaningless as well. Yeah, it's it's odd because you know, Zach Galifianakis's character, uh, Jake, who I, I love him in this and his performance is so great. Um, just like, you know, he kind of has to be the comedic relief, but just seeing him freak out is like one of the greatest things ever. Zach Galifianakis freaking out. But, it, you know, he comes in with that, that uh, the newspaper and we've, we've heard Tabitha, the critic, say that she's going to trash the play no matter what it is. No, you know, absolutely. There is no way that she is going to write a good review of it because she just hates Reagan. And then, you know, she does. And he comes in, he's like, this play is going to run forever. It's going to, you know, they're going to have all these performances and it's a runaway success. There's like, you know, a line three blocks long and, and blah, blah. But the very nature of that, like the, the hyper realism is not sustainable. Like it's, it's not, it's not like he can shoot his nose off every single night of the show. Like it, it doesn't, make any logical sense and so her praising it that leads to its success it's it is asking this question of like well what makes something good art is it just because a critic said it's good does it really just come down to the opinion of one person who said it's good and said like whatever you know and that's part of Riggins whole journey in this is finding his own confidence and what he believes to be worthwhile about his art and what he believes his power to be and of course, that goes back to the literal powers that we see he has in his own mind that are perhaps, you know, what is that kernel that makes him an actor at the core of his being? Is it the Birdman voice? What is the the power, right? Um, and so, like, if he can, when he brings that power out on stage, it's obviously self-destructive, but... It's so arbitrarily judged, which I think is your point. I think that really, really neatly brings us to the ending of the film. And what and so I was doing some heavy thinking as far as I could about what the ending means, because it is obviously so ambivalent. And there's this one, you know, strand of it, which is to do with over the film, we've seen kind of passing cliche references to Buddhism. 
enter meditation. So the film starts with him literally levitating in his in his like backstage dressing room. And yeah, as you say, at certain points in the film, he seems to have uh, telekinetic powers. And he flies literally in the film. And then at the end of the film, he disappears. And his daughter looks up and it, you know, the implication is that he's flying. This uh, is really interesting to me about, you know, asking this question of is the meditation and the ways of dealing with his own anger in the film just a, a false Western co-option of what it means to meditate? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it actually not actually as kind of uh, as cliche as that response? Because it's easy to say like, oh yeah, we, we, corrupt westerners don't understand the true nature of like oriental philosophy you know like that that response actually in in some senses is a kind of uh racially unaware one and Mm -hmm. he as you say his powers come out in self-destruction he shoots his nose off and this self-destruction enables him to silence his inner birdman voice then he goes off and flies apparently so he so he becomes reborn and he and uh, you know that the kind of uh, one implication is that he becomes a, a a bodhisattva and he he becomes someone who has sort of like ascended his uh, you know state of of like being uh, pressed by his desires you know his ego uh, and that's through an act of violence. I wondered if you have had thoughts about like whether the ending is about like that finding yeah finding the inner peace because the film is so you know he's so obsessed with meditation and so obsessed with like finding inner peace never comes but it seems to come at the ending. So this brings us back to the theme of like self-destruction and um, like self-esteem essentially, or which I see as different than ego. So the, the opening quotation for me is kind of the heart of all of this, which is the poem that is inscribed on Raymond Carver's tombstone. Um, which is, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. So Raymond Carver, notoriously self-destructive guy, you know, died very, very young because he basically drank and smoked himself to death. He did end up, you know, he was a, he was a, a notorious alcoholic and wrecked parts of his career and his entire first marriage with that, de- with his descent into, into just rampant alcoholism. Um, he eventually did get sober, but, but still died very young. He was, um, I think around 50 or something like that. He passed away in the eighties. When you see this quotation from Raymond Carver that is inscribed on his tombstone about beloved to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth it of course raises the immediate question, beloved by whom? Who needs to love you for you to get what you want from this life? We see Riggin searching for that love from critics, from the public, the people in the audience, from his daughter, from his girlfriend, from his ex-wife. Um, and I want to come back to Samantha because I think she's really key to all of this and, and key to the ending as we're talking about. But I think ultimately the ending is about that question, who has to love Riggin in order for Riggin to be at peace? Uh, Emma Stone's character, Sam at the end when she looks for his body and doesn't see it and then she looks up into the sky and she smiles she's 
being at that point welcomed into his delusion or his vi- delusion is, is the unkind word for it, but his vision of himself. Right. So like he sees himself as powerful. He sees himself as an actor or an artist um, with a capital A and she sees him is able to see him that way at the end as well, regardless of um, any sort of like sort of plot uh, conclusion that the movie reaches. I think it's more about um, in the eyes of somebody who loves you. Of course, you'd love to see, I would love to see Reagan figure out a way to love himself, but he doesn't actually seem necessarily to arrive there. Or maybe you think he does. What do you think? I mean, it's interesting you talk about how you think that it's about Sam if she looks at the sky and sees him as inviting Sam to see the world a certain way and, and you frame it in a certain negative light. I didn't actually have that thought. I think I, yeah, I, 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 I was thinking about it in, in that more slightly purely philosophical way in terms of the Buddhism stuff and the fact that, you know, that there, there is a potential comment you can find there about how the way that we live our lives means that we can never find internal peace because our, not only our priorities are, in places that they shouldn't be of course um, or or that we have priorities at all and, and whether it's a case of like just removing having anything that you want because obviously if you see Rignoni in the film he doesn't seem to want the birdman voice he's trying to suppress it with these sort of mantras he's giving himself about i i embrace my anger blah 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 mm-hmm. but maybe the response is is not that at all and and try to forget about even trying to suppress these things yeah so the, the priorities thing i thought was was also interesting because oh definitely all these people have come from such different places in the world so you see Riggan is, was a faded superhero star his daughter went to rehab uh we don't know a huge amount of his ex-wife um but we um sylvia i think her the character's name is is her first time on broadway so she's this kind of debutante character and we've got shiner who's a sort of yeah veteran serious theater actors they were coming from these different places and i thought there's some comparison there to be made with babel this film from 06 mm. which is which has like four different languages and it has all these people with with who want different things and if you think about it in that way their priorities are very different uh from all these different storylines so i think what you're saying about trying to root it and ground it in this love and family and sorting out your relationships is really good because i think a huge amount of the way that um men deal with relationships and the way that people deal with relationships in, in the world in certain ways is all about an individual journey through life and sort of seeing what one's path is and that you know in in the best possible way that should coincide with loving people and giving all that you can to other people but where it normally manifests itself is, as you've mentioned with Carver, is like artist's journey. This sort of troubled, uh, you know, self-destructive, self-absorbed journeys through life that part of the art is to do with suffering and not being connected enough with people around you. And the answer seems to be cut it out. Like stop, stop trying to stop, stop kind of being obsessed with yourself and, and obviously uh, your ego and, uh, in that way the the point there is that it reaches a really broad thing about what self-centeredness is and the fact that the way that we express ourselves to each other and the way that society functions to give you examples of people individually it, it uh, is is a 
is something that comes up in this film because things only really happen because of the decision of one person. Yeah, and I think too we have to you know circling back to Sam, um, played by Emma Stone in this movie, uh, has been through rehab. So we we see you know substance abuse and through throughout um, in Yaritu's movies and especially in this movie with uh, Edward Norton's character getting drunk on stage and. Regan also gets drunk at sort of his low point um, where he goes and, you know, just sleeps on a stoop um, because he's passed out drunk in New York City. It's a terrible idea. But, um, you know, we, we see the substance abuse here. And, and so when Sam comes to rehab, the technique, one of the techniques that she's been given to to deal with, you know, coming through all of that is this practice of, of making lines on a roll of toilet paper um, that represent, you know, years in the history of the universe. And so it's just this like, you know, practice, this almost meditative practice. And the framework of that, you know, at a certain point, it's very on the nose as a symbol, but uh, at a certain point, because it's toilet paper, for one, um, which is, you know, disposable and meaningless. Um, but then, of course, Riggin, like, tears off a square of it, or she tears off a square of it and hands it to Riggin, and he uses it to, like, wipe his mouth and crumples it up. And she's like, oh, well, that was however many million years that you just destroyed, you know? We, we've talked a number of times now about it as, a, as the movie as a, a one-shot thing. But of course, it actually is not. There are two very deliberate cutscenes of a meteor or comet, and it, the film opens with it heading towards the Earth, which evokes, you know, sort of ancient like dinosaur. The meteor that that killed all the dinosaurs um, is the one it always makes me think of, which I think it's supposed to. But yeah, that that sense of our own unimportance and our own relative meaninglessness um in terms of you know the universe and so it almost feels like emma stone's character is the the person representing and she says it in words how not special riggan is and how not special anybody is you the artist are not uniquely powerful or uniquely special you're you know just as meaningless as everything else in the universe is i mean does it does it change anything about the way that we watch the movie i think for me the fact that she is the only person who is able to sort of like break out of that spiral the self-indulgent you know self-destructive spiral that everybody seems to be trapped in one of the like hinge pin moments of dialogue of the whole movie for me comes from Naomi Watts where she's like, why don't I have any self-respect? And her co-star goes, Oh honey, you're an actress. And it's, it's exactly that, right? Like everyone is trapped in that, that need to be validated, that need to be special, that need to be good for the critic to write the good review for the audience to stand up and cheer that. And it's interesting. Sam is the one who then like gets her dad, like a Twitter at the end and he's got a bunch of Twitter followers. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that the, the social media presence in the film is also really funny. Yeah, uh, because it it's is. like it's you know she she says like it or not, Dad, this is how fame works in the world now, and, and it's right. You know, it does gain traction the fact that he has to he gets his yeah he gets his bathrobe stuck in the door, so he has to take it off and walk in his underwear through Times Square to get back into the theater for the last bit of the preview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, um, what I was trying to get at with my last point, just to go back to that very briefly, was basically that things to us aren't expressed in art 
in terms of community very often at all yes if you think about yeah, it yeah so so you know again the, the parallel with superhero thing comes back but you know we see expressions of individualism everywhere yes western philosophy for want of a much much better term than that by most people seems to be taken as you know this sort of individual spirit and having individual freedom uh and you know in the world where we're dominated by global capitalism that makes the vast majority of people's lives much worse than they would be um in a different situation yeah we get given this sort of myth of like upwards social mobility where if you work hard enough you're kind of gain all these things and those all those messages are about you're on your own to do this yes and it's this like horrible you know uh poisonous cocktail of like existential freedom and but i lie about how our society is structured basically exactly uh, and so you know the, the rehab thing is great because you know she was part of a community there mm-hmm. and you don't, we, don't, we don't see that in the film but that would have changed her viewpoint about certain things about her significance and about how she's supposed to relate to other people and everyone else is trapped in that circle because they're in specific acting worlds where validation is like a is a key problem but right that stems from i think a much wider net of issues about the fact that we when yeah, so i mean the, the roman cover thing is so perfect because the literal title is what we talk about when we talk about love and mm-hmm. that you know it's challenging you to be like okay well they're they're discussing this philosophical thing and it's you know what we talk about when we talk about a person's journey right it's the same it's the same idea hopefully that makes sense that was like no it, it does and i absolutely agree that we so frequently um measure ourselves as individuals because that's exactly what you're talking about it's it's how our entire society is structured and yet i think riggins relationship with his daughter in this movie is suggesting that a more relational community focused potentially as you're talking about way of being is perhaps more likely to yield that peace that we are seeking, right? Like Reagan is never going to be at peace with himself until he is, until he can, until he can love in a, a real way with his daughter. That, that last sequence, uh, the last scene where she's lying with her head on his chest is so beautiful. And the play that he's doing is, is also like a, contemplation of this right what do we talk about when we talk about love and there's that story about the older couple who like were together and they were in the car accident and and that's that's one of the few monologues that we hear from the play as you're as you're saying and it, uh, of course it's out of Raymond Carver's short story so this suggestion that what did you want to call myself beloved to feel myself beloved on the earth that's beloved by someone else there has to be that the person that loves you. There has to be more than one person in the room for love to exist. Um, and so you get the sense that everybody in this movie would be at peace potentially if they could love and be loved instead of trapped in their own ego um, or whatever it is, uh, trapped in their own um, self-doubt and self-loathing and all the things that they're trapped in. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way to to kind of wrap things up about the ending because in terms of just to go back quickly to the Buddhism thing, you know, I think there is a certain way of understanding Buddhism is 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 that the state you want to achieve 
is one that is actually completely detached from any human desire that leaves you kind of tied to the to the wheel of life right right and that's in, uh, as far as i understand it that also does include human connection so so that so that kind of is actually a manifestation against this uh this argument for love and argument for family and community uh which which needs that if if that is what Rigan is is looking for then he's not going to work out what that means in his state of trying to meditate with birdman voice in his head all the time right and maybe that yeah the answer is that if that is something that really is a goal which the film doesn't tell you whether it is or not in terms of in terms of getting off the the wheel of life and everything right can be achieved once you get told uh, get ripped out of yourself by someone else and that's you know the, the starting point for so much healing if you start listening to someone else who knew who knew that listening to someone else could be helpful you know what i mean um yeah i think we've we've, we've talked a lot about the the themes of the film in general and so we i guess we could start to wrap it up much as i don't really want to to be <laughs> honest um but i guess if if do you have any kind of final thoughts about how to if there's a way to synthesize this film there probably isn't because there's just so much going on uh, but what would you kind of what's your well I guess we can make it the beyond the screenplay style what's the lesson from the oh, screenplay oh god here? okay um, what's the lesson the thing that I keep coming back to is how much the ending was changed here and how this film would feel so different if the original ending with Johnny Depp had, had stayed so depressing oh the it worst would be so depressing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um because I do think at the end, it you know it invites us into all of these conversations that we've been having, but it it ends up it becomes a story about like a father and daughter sort of at its heart rather than the the other things that it is about an artist seeking validation about a person struggling with his like perception the way that he's perceived in society struggling with his you know personal value and uh, you know all of these other things that we've talked about it's about all those things but at the end of the day it it really sort of boils down with the the closing scene here to being about a father and daughter and i think that that Inyari too is saying something about the moment in pop culture and in the world that was at its most salient when he made this in 2014. Um, and, and as we've discussed, all of those sorts of things about like the movie industry and and um, social media, those things still feel relevant, but in 50 years, they will probably not anymore but the father and the daughter story still will, you know, that is something that's uh, timeless thematically. And so I think that's a good word for me. And it, it seemed like it was a good word for Inyari too, because if he had left Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean in the end of this movie, how quickly that would have passed out, you know, passed out of its relevance. In fact, like even talking about it now, it sounds so absurd because of course they're not making Pirates of the Caribbean movies anymore now at least you know not right now <laughs> and hopefully not soon or actually no, they are aren't they but they're using, they're not having johnny depp anymore anyway I, I remember reading something about that no one's making anything at this exact moment but finding that story that is going to be more timeless that's about um you know human relationships uh i think is a really take important takeaway oh yeah that's 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 i think that's a it's really nice to 
make it about the family is the key thing. And that is the most hopeful way to see the ending because you you choose to take the the part of seeing the film that takes you out of what the film the the film's characters are so obsessed with, I guess. Um, just to return to the the intimidation thing, because I think for me when it you know when it came out the film I was uh I was fifteen let's say, and I would have watched it like a year or so after it came out. So when I was about sixteen, and that's like for me it was sort of the peak time where I was watching films. Because one reason was because they were in this like you know that classic like thousand and one movies book that you've got to watch before you die. I have one of those, and I was you know rating films out of ten on IMDb, and that became something that like really hindered my appreciation of films. Was me like actually actively thinking like what what out of ten do I want to give this? It's actually a huge thing. A lot of people watch movies that way, to be honest. And I noticed it in myself, and I was like, I don't want this anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to write down what I've seen by date, and that's it, really. Uh, since since the worst experience of that was with Baby Driver, I kept it was kept <laughs> happening in my in my head. It was weird. But but for Birdman, when it came out in my life, it was it was in that zone of being like being completely lost about what it is about art that's important because mm-hmm. it was all about critical appreciation. It was for you know my brain was responding to this got Oscars and you know this film got loads of Oscars back in 1934 or something. um and, and I'm you know for myself personally I'm glad that I have moved beyond that quite limited scope of seeing films um so that's part of the reason why the film as a history of the film is has its intimidation for me because it's like it's a, it's one of the ultimate challenges as a film of like what it's about the challenge to, to think of so much and that makes me think like, oh, if I can't do it, then what if I'm an inept film critic? Uh, <laughs> it just crystallized in this film so perfectly. Uh, but, but you know, one of the reasons that happens is because it is disorientating and it has that, you know, magical realism aspect that we mm-hmm. haven't discussed a huge amount. But I, um, I really recommend uh, a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez by, called A Hundred Years of Solitude. Oh, yeah. That me- yeah, I don't know. It's it's just fantastic. I mean, it, it's a I guess a, an example you say of magical realism, mm-hmm. one of its finest forms, uh, and that kind of attitude to to things kind of comes through in this film. Um, so I guess my my final sort of takeaway is is films that are deliberately confusing, but but are confusing because uh, they're so thematically rich. Yeah, is is always is not is something that shouldn't be avoided because it is it's such fertile ground for making you think about your own life and how you know where you're going to go next and obviously after Birdman The Revenant happened and that's also a very different film yes it is actually you know has that father son story in it that that it continues that family theme I am looking forward at some point to rewatching it I do want to uh, but it's definitely a grueling one and it's again interesting to think if it's worth thinking about huh okay in the other two went from these heavy hitting d- depressing uh dramas before birdman to this kind of black comedy to an environmentally aware uh indigenously aware and so and in a limited way story um about bear hunters uh, so it's kind of you know <laughs> it's got a good track record i'm looking forward to seeing where it goes next it's going to be something spectacular because one thing we really haven't even talked about is how these movies look and just how incredibly filmed they are. Um, the thing about Babel is that it like, uh, it just, I remember when I saw that movie and I actually didn't get a chance to rewatch it this week, but 
it Inyaritu has this gift of creating images that burn themselves onto your brain and you cannot forget about them. Um, the, of course, in Babel, the like rave scene. Um, yeah. And, you know, even in this, I, for some reason, the, the frames that I remember most in this are the ones just of like Emma Stone's face, basically, because of how she's being filmed. You know, there's this kind of like wide lens on her and her eyes look enormous, <laughs> which they already are. But yeah, and, and all the coloring on this, you know, the scenes in the bar and how like beautifully that's lit and um like all the rich wood paneling that's like reflective and um you know just it's beautiful beautifully beautifully shot i mean it's it's chiva so <laughs> yeah i mean I, I was wondering about the question of like whether there is a serious shift in humanitarianism concern mm. about the first form of movies to whether birdman is actually something very different because it still is something about human connection of course which is the kind of driver of those other films yeah they're about the human condition i don't know if you heard about that but they're yeah yeah it's, it's the I, human I, condition I never heard of that phrase before <laughs> i'll have to look it up on wikipedia and see if it applies to Indiana's just, wikipedia just look page. into it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no you're right about the shots but i think seeing a director who so obviously wants to tell stories about look the way that we relate to each other is so fucked yeah and you know, Birdman's the first one to make that about artistic culture. And the other ones are, are about kind of miscommunication and, and just priorities of different people with different plans. Exactly. Um, so that's maybe, maybe maybe that's the biggest shift. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's he's, uh, you know, he's interested in, in our bodies as well and like health and um, like when you look at all of his films, they don't all end up in a hospital, but there's, there's, there are lots of hospitals. There's lots of injury. There's death, there's disease, there's survival, you know, it's, it, and the like intimate processes of our, our bodies and how they are, um, how, you know, bound to them we are. And then of course the life of the mind is, is uniquely connected to that. And, Inyadik too is obsessed with all of that. Um, so anyway, but yeah, I, I, whatever he makes next is gonna be <laughs> amazing. I'm here for it, even if it's another tour of sadness, which it might be. Um, it pr probably will be grueling, no matter what it is. So, but I mean, all of his films are really about death. Um, there or they're about like the yeah the darkest place in, in human. Um in the human psyche and in the human body um and of course the darkest place is death so the fact that we don't know if reagan dies at the end of this you know that's a possible reading of it he tries to kill himself right like the opening quote is from a tombstone so like you know this is something that in yaritu explores in really unexpected interesting ways um so yeah very into it uh, yeah, well, I, the finality of death is definitely a great place to leave our thoughts in the film. Um, I've got to say, Trisha, again, thank you so much for joining You're me talking welcome, about Batman. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure talking about the movie. I, I'm glad to have kind of done some work in just talking about what's going on in this movie because... A lot is the answer. Yeah, but there we go. We'll leave it at that for Birdman. Check it out if you haven't seen it. If you haven't and you've listened to this, then that is a good combination wow. I suppose. Uh, yeah wow is the, <laughs> is the correct answer uh but i, I really do recommend in films in general uh, i think 21 grams for me is the weakest and and babel in some ways is, is the strongest for me because it just says is so thoughtful and, and so compassionate 
for me. But I, it was really, really worth it watching all those films that I hadn't seen before. And I'm looking forward to watching Revenant again after having seen Birdman and this and this progression. But yeah, so so best of luck to to Alejandro wherever he is. I'm excited to see what he does next as well. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Trisha, if you've got any shout outs, any plugs you want to make before we finish up. I mean, we are always creating new content over at the YouTube channel, Lessons from the Screenplay. Uh, we have actually some really interesting, very ambitious videos coming out here pretty soon. So definitely check that out uh, if you're interested in video essays that that specifically focus on screenwriting um, and why and when screenwriting is effective. And then we, uh, of course, have our podcast, which is called Beyond the Screenplay. Um, you can listen to me and the rest of our team. We do deeper dives into the movies that we analyze for the channel, but we also talk about just whatever movies come up we do one movie an episode so we really get to do a deep dive into various movies and it's a lot of fun i i really couldn't be luckier so really really enjoy getting to work on all of that and you can reach out to me on social media too i love talking to people about movies I truly don't need an excuse to do it anymore always really happy to do that i'm uh, trisha jean a on twitter trisha again thank you so much for joining me shout out to the lessons a uh, big team again like i said at the beginning brian i haven't forgotten about you i'm coming <laughs> for you it's happening one day man we'll see what happens uh but best of luck for all your endeavors trisha you were Thank too you so shy much. to mention it but trisha's bringing out a book in september so mm-hmm. i'm going to read that as well stay posted follow trisha on twitter for more information about that in the ensuing months but in the meantime go listen to beyond the screenplay awesome podcast Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Trisha, thank you so much again. And I'll catch you very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>